Author John Maxwell is credited with providing the reminder that change is inevitable. Growth is optional. But I have a feeling he hadn't yet met today's guest or realized the power of the Catalyst community. Welcome to 2024. The new year always brings that fresh hope of positive change. And and with that, we knew exactly who would be the perfect guest to kick off your new year. The master of change himself, multiple-time best-selling author Brad Stolberg. You know his books, Peak Performance, The Passion Paradox, The Practice of Groundedness, and his recent hit, The Master of Change. And today, you'll get to know the man behind them and the practical guidance to get us off on the right step toward positive change in the new year. Thank you for joining us here on the Cattle's 360 Podcast, where we cover the full 360 degrees of life and the evidence-based practices that provide the catalyst for a better life for ourselves, clients, coworkers, family, and our community. I'm your host, Dr. Brad Cooper, CEO of Catalyst Coaching 360, endurance athlete, husband of Susanna, dad and grandpa to seven amazing kids, three of whom joined our family by marrying our own kids. And finally, especially this week as we kick off the new year, the dreamer of big dreams. Thank you for investing a portion of your week with us. Speaking of change, if you've been considering pursuing your NBHWC approved certification as a health and wellness coach, either to enhance your current career or as the first step toward a fresh new one, now is the time. The first cohort of the year kicks off January 20th. It's all virtual, but we limit class sizes to keep the personal connection with our students. So please do not wait to get registered. All the details on our institute site, catalystcoachinginstitute.com, or reach out anytime with questions about this one or the next one we have scheduled later in the year. Email is results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com. We're happy to talk through any questions you have about the curriculum, your career plans, or anything else coaching related. And now it's time to address the only constant in life with the master of change, Brad Stolberg, on the latest episode of the Catalyst 360 podcast. Brad Stolberg, we don't have many people back in our 300 plus episodes. You are one of those exceptions. Welcome back. Brad Cooper. It's good to be here. New book, Master of Change. Just looking at the title, the the dichotomy in that mastering, but mastering something that's always moving, always shifting, has such an intriguing title. How'd you land on it? And were you looking to create that inherent dichotomy when you finally landed on that one? Ooh, yes, I was. And I'm so glad that you took note of it because not too many people do. Although after they read the book, they come back to the title and then they say, ah, now I see what he was trying to do. So a big argument in the book is for non-dual thinking, Mm -hmm. which essentially says that there are words that we tend to think of as polarities, such as mastery and change. And that oftentimes, in order to navigate uncertainty and chaos and disorder skillfully, we have to get good at holding two competing ideas at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do that right on the front cover of the book, hence Mastering Change. Love it. So let's sit on that for a second. The the non-dual thinking, that is, that's an issue. Like, that's a, a massive problem in our world right now. And I'm sure you can get into many of the reasons you found with that. Obviously, the social media draws you into more echo chamber of the things that you already are thinking or, or think you're thinking. Walk us through that that whole non-dual thinking and help people understand why why it's a concern and, and maybe how we can, I don't know, tweak that a little bit personally. Well, I think that the way that we got to where we are 
where people are very quick to jump to polar ends of yes, spectrums. Absolutely. Um, is in large part a result of just our innate need to find belonging and sources of identity. And I think that the internet has really uh, capitalized on that need for its own ends. And by the internet, I mean the attention economy. So companies that get paid based on the amount of attention that we're staring at the app or the screen or whatever it might be. And um, it has kind of sorted based on, well, I stand for this or I stand for that. And I need to have an opinion on everything right away. And at the same time, so many of the places that we go to get information or to share information are limited in the amount of characters you can post or how long a <laughs> video can be. So you often don't even have time to explore nuance. So I think what happens is um, we lose that and people default to hot takes uh, and fairly extreme takes. And again, oftentimes for complex issues that we are facing as individuals or as organizations or as entire societies, um, the answer is generally not this or that, but some version of this and that. Uh, the Nobel winning behavioral economist and social psychologist Dan Kahneman mm -hmm. is known for saying, don't ask if this is true, ask of what is this true? Mm. And I just, my research and reporting on this book and navigating change in particular, it, it really showed me that the answer isn't control or let go, it's control and let go. Mm. The answer isn't rugged or flexible, it's rugged and flexible. Mm. The answer isn't tragedy or optimism, it's tragic optimism. Um, and it really seems that those that can navigate chaos and disorder and uncertainty well uh, are able to display this sort of non-dual thinking. And perhaps you could go, you know, take it to the next, uh, the next logical place in the argument about the attention economy is chaos kind of benefits the attention economy. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's like the Gawker effect. You know, you're driving in car in, in, in your car and you see like a pileup or an accident. And it's just like there's something about our brains where we're hardwired to look mm -hmm. over. Yep. And I think there's a lot of that on social media where skillfully navigating complexity. Um, you don't get like that jarring rush of excitement or despair or anger. Um but you tend to make more thoughtful and discerning decisions. Can you give us a, <laughs> I'm about to ask you to do something in a short form after we just talked about short form doesn't work. Uh, can you give us a starter step for the person who is listening to this and says, yeah, I, I hear what Stolberg's saying. I, I probably do fall into that leap to conclusions. I've got to be with my tribe. Don't, don't consider any of my previous thoughts. Any initial, I don't want to take all of our time on this, although we easily could, but just some things to trigger that. Maybe the realization that we're falling into that would be a great starting point. I think it's just that. I think that it's whenever you want a simplistic narrative on something, I would just kind of ask yourself, like, is this really that simple? Or might there be some nuance that I'm missing? And sometimes it really is that simple. Um, so it's not to say that everything is super complex and nuanced and would benefit from non-dual thinking. I just think that uh, a lot would. And um, and again, people often go back to these um, these this or that takes. And this or that takes are also just easier for our brain. Like sure. it requires less energy. Right. 
just to say, like, I'm going to put my stake over here and I'm not going to consider any alternatives or even how other alternatives might be true. Um, so, yeah, I think it's catching yourself. And then I think it's asking yourself, like, how might I be wrong? Or on an issue where people immediately go into, it's got to be this way, just kind of asking yourself, like, well, what would it take for that way, the other way, um, to be true? And, and in mm. particular, when it comes to navigating uncertainty, um, the, the non-dual thinking that runs through the heart of the book is rugged flexibility. And um, normally people hear the word rugged and they think of determination and toughness and being hard and like picking yourself up by the bootstraps and agency and control. These are like the word cloud around sure. rugged. Yeah. And then you hear flexibility in the word cloud is soft and supple and letting go and bending, not breaking and going with the flow. And um, the research and reporting is so clear that individuals and organizations that navigate change really well, they're not rugged or flexible, they're rugged and flexible. So they literally hold and practice these two competing mindsets and ideas at the same time. Via, like, how are they doing that? What, what's, and I know you get into this in more detail because that's a core element of your book is the rugged flexibility. Can you, again, give us a little starter set on combining two almost competing concepts? Yeah. So I think in this notion, um, a good way to start is to think of ruggedness as your current values. Um, so the qualities that you aspire towards, the way that you want to show up and be and do in the world, mm -hmm. um, those are sources of ruggedness. And then the flexibility is, well, how do you apply those? Uh, so if a core value is presence or health or change agent or reputation or compassion or kindness or strength, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, once you have that value, then you can ask yourself in various circumstances, well, what would it look like to apply strength or kindness or presence, whatever it is, in this circumstance and be willing for it to be different from circumstance to circumstance. So it's values held really tightly and ruggedly, but very flexibly applied. Okay. Uh, and I think that is how we navigate the unknown. Because when we go into the unknown, if we're too rigid and we stick to anything um, too tightly, then we tend to like get selected out. Because when the environment shifts, if we're just stuck in our ways, then we don't meet the moment and, and we're in trouble. But the flip side is also true. Whereas if we don't really know who we are, or we don't have any anchoring point of stability, then navigating into the unknown becomes extremely discombobulating and scary. And we often misstep too. Uh, so it's about holding both of these qualities. It's super fascinating that you, you talk also about the having versus being in the book and, and, based on what you were just saying, one of our big emphasis that we've talked about over and over is being focusing on the who before the what. So realizing what is the vision of the person I'm becoming and then move to goals, which frankly almost achieve themselves once you're clear on that vision. It sounds a lot like you're saying the same thing with this having versus being element. Can, can you take us one layer deeper than what you were just saying with that? Yeah, that's right. So, um, Having versus being, uh, Eric Fromm, the 20th century philosopher and psychoanalyst, uh, wonderful humanist thinker, first coined this dichotomy. And having is when you define yourself by what you have. 
uh, I have this house, I have this skill set, I have this car, I have this watch, I have this income, this bank account, this title, whatever it might be. And when we define ourselves too closely by what we have, we become really fragile. Mm. Because if that thing changes or is taken away altogether, then we completely lose a sense of who we are. Whereas our being attributes are what I would call our values or our essential qualities, what you would call the who, what makes us who we are. And when we define ourselves by those qualities, well, those can't be taken away from us. We might have to, again, flexibly apply those depending on the circumstances around us, but those are ours and we get to shape those. Uh, it's almost as if the having stuff is the external scoreboard and the being is the internal scoreboard. And you can't control the external scoreboard, but you can control the internal scoreboard. Yet so many people focus so much on their external scoreboards, followers, bank accounts, sales, growth, and they don't even consider what their internal scoreboard would look like. And to me, the internal scoreboard is the far more important one, which is what are my values and am I living in alignment with them? And it's not to say that external scoreboards don't matter. I mean, they do. If you're a salesperson, you need to close deals. If you're an author, you need to sell books. If you're a podcast host, you need downloads. Um, I think the problem becomes when that becomes the cart that's driving the horse, uh, when the horse ought to be the who you are and what you're trying to become. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Uh... <laughs> We can go so many directions with this. Let's let's touch on the homeostasis versus allostasis. So quick definitions for all our listeners. Homeostasis is what we generally think of. Something is is stable, it breaks down, and then we return it to its previous orderly status. Allostasis, order, disorder, and then reorder. Ooh, and that seems so much more applicable in today's world. So w- walk us through where you went with that and, and how we can apply that in our own lives. Yeah, that's right. I think that the etymology of these two worlds uh, really tells the whole story. So homeostasis comes from the Latin root um, homo, which means same, and then stasis, which means standing. So it argues that the way to achieve stability is by staying the same. And allostasis comes from the root allo, which means change or variable, and then stasis, which again means standing. So allostasis argues that the way to achieve stability is through change. And it just has this elegant double meaning, which is, yes, we can be stable through change, but that requires changing at least to some extent. So homeostasis is very dual. It says that you have stability, and then there's a change, so you lose stability, and then you have to get back to stability. Whereas allostasis is much more of a non-dual approach, and it says you have stability, you go through change, and then you maintain that stability, but it has to be somewhere new. Like there is no going back to the way that things were. There's only moving forward. So it acknowledges that, yes, we do crave stability, and stability is an innate drive for human beings and human organizations, but change is also innate and unavoidable. And if we try to get back to where we were, or we try to achieve stability by avoiding change, we're just going to fail and suffer. Whereas if we recognize that life is one ongoing cycle of order, disorder, reorder, uh, then we can develop the tools to navigate that cycle and to find some stability through it. So powerful. And I'm thinking of the bestseller, and hopefully you'll put that in your rearview mirror of who moved my cheese back in what, 87 or something. Um, how do you know when to pull the plug? How, how do you know? Because I, I love what you're saying. I also get the, I want to 
I want to go back to where it was before. It was so good before. Um, how do you know when to say, all right, forget where we were. We're going to reorder over here. We're going to take this new direction. What, how, do you, how do you know? I think the first thing is if there's a significant change, then that's the answer. Like it's never going to go back to the way it was. Uh, a marriage, a divorce, kids, kids moving out of the house, individual contributor, now a manager or a leader, uh, major health event, uh, grief, loss, like there is no getting back to where you were. So I think the first thing is if there's a major change, you just can't get back to where you were and just like stop trying. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't want to try to create stability. You should, but you've got to have the expectation that that stability is going to be somewhere new. I think if you're in a more nuanced situation where you're kind of deciding, like, do I want to jump into disorder? So do I want to stay in this job even though I don't really like it? Or do I want to resign and jump into disorder and then recreate professional stability somewhere new? Uh, if you are tinkering with retirement, Ooh, that's a big one. Like talk about a big disorder event. Do I want to stay in my job or do I want to jump into disorder? And there, the question that I find really helpful. And if you're honest with yourself, it tends to be very, very, um, like illustrating of what one should do is just to ask yourself, are you staying in this because you're prolonging the inevitable or are you staying in this because you're genuinely curious about what could happen next? And I've had athletes ask themselves that question and then break down in tears because the answer as to whether or not they should retire became so clear. And I've seen it work in both ways. So am I staying in this job? Am I staying in this relationship? Am I staying in this role? Am I staying in this sport? Because I'm curious about what's going to happen next or because I'm just scared of this change, but I'm just prolonging the inevitable, which is the change. And if you're prolonging the inevitable, then I would say that it's probably better just to jump into the sea of disorder now versus make yourself miserable trying to hold on to the old when the new is coming regardless. So a couple things there. Scared. Uh, that's a powerful word. Uh, I appreciate you putting that into your description there. That's a big driver. So the person that is any of those examples you mentioned, retirement, new job, marriage situation, different school, different degree, whatever it might be, different professional career as an athlete or not, fear is a, it's a thing. I, I, it's a huge so thing. What, 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 I, how, do we, how do we contextualize that or balance that with the, the curiosity you talked about? Where do we go with that? I think that making a shift like that and facing the fear is a lot easier when you have a supportive community. Mm. So that's the first thing yes. that I'd say is like, if you're going to retire, go find eight other people that had the same decision and help them, you know, have, excuse me, not help them, have them help you, have yeah. them hold your hand Come together. if you need it. Go find the other athlete that has been through that transition and make sure that you're going out for coffee with them once a week. Um, go find other people that switched their collegiate majors or degrees or went back to school and hear their experience. Uh, there's a reason that support groups are so effective for everything from anxiety, depression, substance use disorder, grief, uh, even in the corporate world, a brain trust, just like a support group for management. These are so effective because jumping into disorder is hard and scary and fearful. 
And we tend to be much stronger when we feel connected to others and we're in community. So community is the first thing that I would say. Um, and then the second thing that I would say is go back to those rugged core values. And like that is your anchor. If everything around you feels complex and out of control, if you know what your values are, you at least have that to stand on. And then related to that is during periods of big change, I think it's helpful to have some areas of your life that you carve out where things are not changing at all. Uh, and this is the power of like a routine or a ritual. So I think when you're about to enter into big sweeping change in one domain of life, if you can have a tried and true routine, uh, something that is in your control, that is predictable, that you know is going to be the same every day, that helps you then go meet the chaos. Brad, that is so, so good. I had a couple of buddies um, that we went to college together and they were saying, Brad, you're such a risk taker. And I, I was like, I, I don't even know what you mean because we started our own business, but it, it didn't make sense. And then as I was thinking later about it, it was exactly what you talked about. I, I'm fortunate to have an amazing woman I'm married to who is such a rock. We've lived in the same place. We are, we're pretty conservative with our investments. So, so all of those things. So the, the taking the leap on the company thing was a, in the bigger pie was a small slice versus this all encompassing affected marriage house, everything else. So I can see that on a personal level. That's a, that's a great one. Um, it, it makes me think about the different levels of risk with different people. So some people, there's no way. Like I, I, I don't even want to try a different whatever with my coffee in the morning, let alone take this leap in one of the things that we were talking about. Can you talk that piece through of, of maybe personalities or backgrounds or histories and how that might influence this willingness to try the curious path versus no, 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 no. I don't, I don't even care about the curiosity. Just, I just want to know what tomorrow is. Mm. I think that there's a big temperamental difference in that. So I'm glad that you're asking in, in temperament is um, the like innate traits that we're mm -hmm. born with. And a psychologist would call this openness to experience versus um, rigidity or neuroticism. And we often hear neuroticism, we think it's a bad thing, but um, as a personality trait, it's neutral. It simply means that you're more of the tried and true person. Um, and I don't think that either is better or worse. There's no data to show that either is better or worse. Back to non-dual thinking, sometimes it's helpful to be really open to experience. Sometimes it's helpful to be much more tried and true. Uh, I think just knowing where you sit on that spectrum is real helpful. And if you're the tried and true person, realizing that you can be as tried and true as possible, but like the world is not tried and true. The world is a very uncertain place. Uh, and you need to accept that because if not, then you are going to just suffer so much resisting many changes that are inevitable. Uh, aging, like you could live in a bubble, but you're still going to age and aging changes things. It changes, um, how you use your body. It changes physical pursuits. Uh, it changes the balance of real quick on your think thinking to more wisdom based thinking. Like these things are unavoidable. Um, geopolitical and economic and social and climate change, like these things are unavoidable. So, I, I think that being, an, and I am someone, I wrote this book, Master of Change, but back to these, these personality traits being neutral, I am someone that is much lower on openness to experience and, mm. and, and probably higher on like the tried and true. So I can appreciate those people. Um, 
And I think that it's leaning into the tried and true and having your routine and um, having your community and having those things that are in your control that then empowers you and gives you the courage and the strength to go kind of against your temperament and to go face uncertainty where you have no choice. But balancing that with the bigger picture, if, if I remember right from our chat a couple of years ago, you moved from, I think, Palo Alto area to the Carolinas or something like that. I mean, that, was, that wasn't a subtle thing. Like you, you, and you guys had kids at the same time. And like, what was going through your brain? Let's, let's just like flip the mirror around. What was going through your brain through all of this and that debate? And, and how did you apply not knowing that you were going to write this book? Cause that was several years ago, but, or, or maybe reverse. <laughs> what did you learn from that experience that you then brought into this book? Mm. Yeah, I think um, the the values piece, like all of those decisions were just driven by uh, our family's values on where we wanted to live, on whether or not to have kids. And these are joint values. So it's even harder because mm. sometimes sometimes your own values are in conflict with each other. And then sometimes your values are conflict with your partner, whether it's a business partner, an intimate partner. Uh, so it was wrestling with that, but ultimately like having confidence in our joint values um, to make some of these decisions and some of the decisions that didn't involve my wife. It's just like knowing my values. Um, so that gave me a lot of confidence and strength throughout all this. Uh, and then having things that didn't change, like my physical practice, um, that is a rock for me in my life. Like it does not go away. Um, I can do it in a garage in Asheville in a field in Oakland or on top of a mountain in Marin County, California. But if I have a movement practice that I know I can show up and do, that is very predictable. That huge. is a huge source of stability. So that was there throughout all this change. Uh, writing didn't go away. That was there throughout all this change. Um, and then recognizing that it wasn't going to be easy and uh, learning from the research and writing for this book that like it does not make sense to compare the new to the old because mm. the new is not the old. And if you get too stuck comparing the new to the old, then often you try to recreate the old and you completely miss the boat on new opportunities. But but how do we not? I, I, it's just natural. Like, okay, we Suzanne and I just moved two years ago. We're We're constantly... And fortunately, on a positive side, looking at, oh, we love this so much better, or, you know, this is so great. How, how do you avoid either one, the, the upside downside to the new versus or the changed versus the prior? Mm. I think that um, it, it just has to do with acknowledging the role of expectations in our happiness and how when expectations are met, we tend not to feel happy. So going into change, really trying to release from expectations. Now, that's not to say that if after you move to a new place, let's say, or start a job, like a year and a half later, you still can't stand it. Um, that's important information. Like mm. maybe you ought to go back to what you were doing. And like going forward in a new direction isn't always the right choice. Um, sometimes it's forced upon you. You get laid off. Um, you experience uh, loss. Uh, there's a failure that you can't undo. And in those qu those cases, I do think it's helpful just to try to have a, a short memory about the old. And, and you can look back on the old with, um, with love and reverence and warm feelings while at the same time acknowledging that, hey, uh, where I'm going is going to be different. It is, you don't have to say it's going to be better. 
you shouldn't self-fulfill a prophecy and say it's going to be worse, but just expect that it's going to be different. Uh, reorder looks different than order. I, I like that. Uh, you, so you're bringing in some Ted Lasso, be a goldfish. Although I did see there some research go. that the uh, goldfish has more of a memory than Ted might think. So we won't dive too much into that research. I, I, I do want to jump on this happiness expectations thing. That was one of the, the notes I jotted down from your book. Uh, psychologists indicate our happiness in any given moment is a function of our reality minus our expectations. So when reality matches expectations, or, or is better, we feel good. When it falls short, we feel bad. But, so I feel free to jump into that a little bit. But the, the big thing I want to get into is how do you walk that tightrope? Because I've also seen people that just set such low expectations. It's like, really? Like that, that's your expectation? So, so how do we walk that tightrope of big expectations without setting up auto disappointment, if you will? Yeah, I have two simple answers, uh, but simple doesn't always mean easy, as you know. So my my first simple answer is have very high expectations for yourself in things where there's an internal locus of control, meaning that the effort that you put in determines the outcome, and then have much lower expectations for the world around you and for things that you don't control. Um, that's kind of my guiding heuristic. So have very high expectations for the process, but low expectations for the outcome. And then the second and arguably most skillful way to handle this is try not to have any expectations at all and try just to be very present <laughs> for what you're doing. And then you just get to meet the world as it is completely unfiltered. I mean, this is the goal of a meditative practice or really any uh, mindfulness practice is just to be in the moment void of priors, thoughts, feelings, and just to see what's happening, be in conversation with it, adjust as you go. I find that really hard. Um, so <laughs> no I, end up doing, I, I end up doing a, a, a combined approach. Okay. Um, I'm taking notes here, brother. Yeah. I end up doing a combined approach. So I try to, I try to have high expectations of myself, but low expectations of results. And then uh, I just try to, to be in the moment. And, and I also like, sometimes you feel a lot of frustration and you can just ask yourself, Oh, like, is this because my expectation wasn't met? Uh, and if the answer is yes, then you're like, all right, well, at, at least you know why you're feeling really frustrated. And then the work is, well, can I, can I release from that and adjust to the new reality? Uh, an example of this is um, an injury or illness that sets you back. So you had this plan and it can be a plan for your physical fitness, for uh, a career track, you name it. And then you get injured. Um, for an athlete, you pull your hamstring. For a knowledge worker, you get COVID. And suddenly, like, you're pretty sick. And this whole big presentation and uh, Gantt chart and, and project that you were going to manage over the next two weeks, like, you're probably not managing it. Right. Uh, if you can't shift your expectations, then you're just going to, like, judge yourself and be really pissed off. And you'll probably make the situation worse because you'll try to push too hard and you'll make the injury worse. Or you'll try to show up to work when you have terrible brain fog and you'll mess everything up. Whereas if in the moment you can say, all right, like, you know, my expectation was I was going to peak in my training or my expectation was I was going to make the new hire this week, but like I, I pulled my hamstring or I've got the flu or whatever it is, I can't. Then you just have to update that expectation. Say like, all right, well now my expectation is that I'm going to be going to be sick for a little, but better to respect that than to trudge ahead as if I were healthy and make whatever I'm going through worse. 
Is there something about, I don't know, I'm making this up on the fly. Is there something about allowing the expectations in advance to drive our actions? So you set a, you set a goal, you run and want to, you want to run a sub, whatever, 38 minute 10 K. And so you, you set up your, your training to hit the intervals with that and put, get your tempo runs in and all that kind of stuff. But then on race day, you let it all go and you let the process take over. You don't, or if you're 10 seconds off that first mile split, you're like, okay, just yeah, everything I sure. got. The, the fitness determines your race, not the time. Yeah. Yeah. Like the goal of the goal of a race. And this could be, um, this could be any kind of race, uh, an endurance race, something of strength, a psychological race, a career you could even conceptualize totally. the same way is your fitness at any given moment. So your ability to respond to your environment is what is going to determine your performance. So you can set expectations. I want to run a 38 minute 5k. I want to deadlift 600 pounds. I want to be a more self-aware leader. I want to go from being an individual contributor to a manager. Those are all like really helpful because you need like some guide rails right. on, on how you're going to train and how you're going to prepare. Yeah. Exactly. But then like when it's time to meet the moment, that star out there is gone and it's just the star in front of you. Yeah, totally. It, 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 yeah, it's uh, and, and it kind of ties into the challenge threat research, too. When you have that yeah. goal so locked in your head, you flip you, from this is a challenge to, oh, my gosh, I'm not achieving it. Threat, car, you know, cardiorespiratory influence on that, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, that that's it's interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I think that that is a prime example of just like holding on to an expectation too tightly, especially if it's maybe unrealistic. I mean, think about the difference with like playing to win versus playing not to lose. Oh, yeah. When you're playing to win, when you're in the underdog mindset, i.e. a low expectation, you're having so much fun. Um, You're just out there giving it your all and whatever happens is going to work out and be a good day because like you weren't even in this place to begin with. Whereas if you're playing not to lose, uh, you're scared, you're fearful, you're trying to avoid missteps, you're going to be devastated if you lose. Uh, And I think like when we go for big goals, whether it's a race, whether it's a promotion, whether it is being recognized in our field, whether it's winning a Nobel Prize, I mean, at the highest level, I think trying to set ourselves up to play to win and to have that lighthearted attitude of like, man, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's crazy I'm even here is so much more uh, emotionally and socially fulfilling. And as you mentioned, physically healthy than playing not to lose and saying, oh, if I don't get this, then I'm a failure. Yes. And I'm thinking of some of, and maybe this is just on the extreme end of the spectrum. It seems like to reach the highest levels, you've also got to have that internal... I'm going to do whatever it takes to get this done ethically and, and legally, et cetera. But whatever it takes, you, you know what I'm saying? Like it, it seems like there's still needs or could benefit from some of that stuff too versus the, I'm just having fun out here. Good to go. Let's make this thing happen. You know, do you hear what I'm saying? Maybe I'm not asking it very well, but. I do. Okay. And I think that back to non-dual thinking, like we all have the ability yeah. oh, to. Beautiful to put on both of those hats. And I think there's gotta be some of that talent researchers call it the inner mongrel, like that part of you that just like, it's like win or go home. Um, 
And I think that it's just about making sure that that is that that is matched by or counterweighted by uh, a hey, man, I'm just happy to be playing the game. And if you're just too happy to be playing the game in in my construct in the book, if you're just too flexible, well, you're going to be super soft and like you're not going to have a chance. But if you're just that inner mongrel and you're just too rugged, uh, then your own rigidity and fear is probably going to get in your way. Um, so I would say like you need equal parts drive and chip on your shoulder and fun and joy. Yeah. No, I, I, that's very, very well said. Um, my PhD work focused on something we called functional mental toughness. And one of the interesting studies out there is the higher your mental toughness, the more likely you are to get injured also. So, so it's mm. like, it drives you through it, but it also drives you through it. Like it's a problem at, at that extreme. So Awesome yeah. callback on the, on the non-dual thinking. It's just non-dual thinking. Like when, when you talk about your research, I just can't help but think it's like grit is the most important quality until what you need to do is quit. <laughs> exactly. Yes. yes. And it's like wisdom is knowing when it's time to quit. And I really think like, you know, you can read books, you can take courses and all those help. And then you go out and you live in the world and you experiment and you fail And like, you kind of start to learn like, all right, like, yeah, I got to turn on the grit versus actually, I think it's time to quit. Right. Right. No, that's huge. That's huge. All right. Um, let's talk glory days. So Bruce Springsteen, the the whole concept of the song is, oh yeah. Remember back when and blah, blah, blah. How, it, it seems like a lot of folks get mentally stuck in some aspect of their past life. And it happens a lot. Uh, how, how, do, how do you move forward? It, it's not so much a resistance to change, but it's almost like they're stuck in the past and they don't even realize they're stuck in the past. It's just every story that comes out of their mind was 15 years ago or 12 years ago or back in college or when I had this other job or whatever. And, and they don't even see it. Well, any, any, tips, mm. any tips for someone who's listening to this and they think, well, maybe that's me. You probably wouldn't recognize it if you set it up the way I just did. But you, you know what I'm saying? The person that's I do. in the glory days. Well, first, I want to separate between nostalgia, which is like a really positive Fair. emotion. Excellent. Versus living in the past, Excellent. Uh, which often gets you in trouble. Yes. So if you are reflecting on the past and thinking of it with warm feelings and endearment and perhaps telling stories with friends, that's great. Um, if you are living in the past when the world around you is in the now, that is not is good. Uh, so what to do if you are, if you find yourself falling into this trap? Um, I think that it, I'm going to go back to like this values exercise. I would just like try to ask yourself, well, what are my values? What do I really care about? What are the attributes that matter most to me? What's happening around me in my family, my health, um, the world, if you work, my organization, if you're a student in my schooling and how am I currently applying my values? And am I applying those values as if I were living 20 years ago or am I applying those values as if I'm living now? Um, and I think that like the, to, to, to make this like really tactical, um, I came up as a writer during the blog sphere where like everyone had a blog and if you wanted your work to be read and discovered, you wrote on a blog and that is no longer the case. Um, now if you want your work to be discovered, you have conversations on podcasts, uh, you build a social media platform, you have a newsletter, 
Um, but most, most independent bloggers, if all you have is a blog, like very few people are going to read that blog. Uh, it's just not how people engage with, with ideas right now. So if I was too attached to just writing a blog, uh, that would be living in the past. And I think that it would not work out well for me. Um, but if my value is discussing big ideas and trying to find words for human experiences, and I reorient around that and I can say, all right, that's what I value. Well, how am I going to do that today? And the answer right now, to be frank, is like good podcast conversations are probably the biggest driver of that. 15 years from now, if podcasts are gone, there's going to be another way to do that. My job is to take that value, orient what's happening around me, and then figure out how to apply that value versus just the thing. It's also to have or to be, right? If you have a blog and you're attached to that blog, that's all you know. If your being quality is language and words and concepts, well, you can apply that in broad circumstances. And just a quick shout out and uh, make sure I get the name right here, Brad, but I don't read a ton of newsletters. I've probably got eight or 10 that I read regularly and yours is one of them. It's excellent, folks. I think it's called Growth EQ. Is that correct? Yeah, the yeah. Growth Equation newsletter. Yeah, with, uh, you and Steve Magnus do Steve such Magnus a good job. Yeah, yeah. We, we try. had We had Steve on before and you guys have such a nice mix between the two of you. So let's stay on this Glory Days for a second. So that's super helpful. How about the slightly tweaked version of that, of the person that loved their life where they were. It's not nostalgia. It's their, they just, they, they can't move on. So it's not a, maybe it's tied to the values. I don't know. I, I just, I have some friends that they're just, they they're sitting in a bad spot because they keep looking, they're, they're, they're looking for a future that equals what they had 15 years ago and it's 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 going and it ain't coming back to quote our yeah. home run calling announcers out there. Yeah. And, and and I think this is like a trap that aging athletes fall into Ooh. all the time. Um and you can like just butt your head up against the wall denying the fact that you're aging and trying to train the same way and compete the same way and judging yourself versus the same times as you were when you were in peak physical age. Um, and just be really frustrated by it. So how do you reckon with that? That's, that's what I'm hearing you, um, you throw out here. And, um, I think it's hard. I mean, if it was easy, everyone would do it. And I think the people that get stuck, it, it, it is perhaps particularly hard for them. I think the first thing is you have to realize that it's not working. So in sport, it's kind of easy. Like you get injured, um, you lose the number on the clock. Isn't what it used to be. It's very objective. And like, you can only delude yourself for so long before you're like, all right, this isn't working. You hit a rock bottom per sport, uh, per se. So, you know, a torn hamstring, a series of back injuries. This happened to the tennis player, Roger Federer, who at age 33 was still playing the same way he was at 28. And he underwent a three-year series of just like really shitty back injuries. And he didn't win a tournament. Mm. And eventually somewhere in there, he kind of hit rock bottom and said, all right, like I'm not 28-year-old Roger anymore. I'm 35-year-old Roger. And he reinvented his game and went on to have phenomenal end of his career (laughs) between 37 and 40. Yes, he did. Um, so maybe some of what your friends need or your, your hypothetical friend in this situation is to have their own, um, their own bottom, 
And whether that is a financial bottom or a relational bottom or just like an existential search for meaning bottom. Um, but it's hard because now like there's so many technologies that just let you numb yourself. So if your marriage isn't falling apart, if you still have enough money in the bank and you can pay rent and live your lifestyle, if you're not getting injured and it's just like kind of an emptiness in your life, uh, what do people do to fill that emptiness? They, they, they find a tribe on the internet and get really angry about something. Yeah. Uh, and then they get so hooked on that and then it's harder to see your way out. And this is a new thing. Right. Right. Uh, last question on this and then we'll leave it behind. But if, if somebody has a friend or a family member and they're hearing this and they're like, Oh my gosh, that's my whatever. Any tips to gently encourage slightly nudge without being like, you are living in the past, you knucklehead. Mm. Um, I think that the the first thing would be to identify what the person is doing is like a numbing agent okay. and try to take a break from that. So sometimes it's a substance, like like legitimate substance use disorder. Sometimes it's a behavior, um, scrolling the internet and getting like really angry and involved in internet tribalism. Uh, and most people can recognize somewhere in them that like those behaviors aren't good. And then it's like, well, what would it look like to like spend two weeks offline? And then in those two weeks, the person will likely go through a really crappy withdrawal in low. But if you're there to support them, then out the other side could be like, man, like I was really spending a lot of time kind of just numbing this lack of meaning. And I need to go find a new way to create meaning in my life that is more fulfilling than the internet, than drinking, um, name that behavioral right. or physical addiction. Right. Uh, that's awesome. All right, just because a couple more. It's, it's fairly it's fairly easy for people to realize that they're living in the past and they need to make a change when they're not numbing the emptiness. But when yep. the emptiness is being numbed, it's much harder because like pain the, the purpose of pain of that feeling is to signal to you like something's wrong, I got to do something different. Right. But if you're numbing that pain, um then you don't get that signal and then you get stuck. Yeah, you're not feeling that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I love that. All right. Just a couple more. You shared publicly about your own mental health struggles for those not familiar with your journey and whatever you're comfortable with here. Could you take us through some of the key twists and turns and maybe an update on how things are going today? Mm, thank you. Yeah. So I've been, um, I've been quite public about my diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, which is quite misrepresented in, uh, in movies and television shows. So it's not just a propensity to want to have things like tidy or to, to always wash one's hands. It's a pretty debilitating anxiety disorder centered around, uh, intrusive thoughts and feelings. Um, I am doing quite well right now. Uh, how am I doing well? Uh, when I was acutely sick, this is some years back, uh, I did intensive therapy for over a year and mm. was very fortunate to work with just a phenomenal therapist. Uh, OCD responds really well to SSRIs, a class of drugs. So I've been taking an SSRI medication since the uh, onset of this. And um, when I have periods where it gets bad, because it's a chronic condition, uh, and um I go through those and it's not fun. I don't like it, but uh, I have tools that I didn't. And I think the most important tool is I have an awareness of what's happening and some insight into it and just the ability to name like, oh, this is happening. This sucks, uh, but it'll probably pass because it has in the past um, can can help put the brakes on it. 
And and going back, so this is over the last five or six years that you've been talking about publicly. Is was that a bridge? Was that a phase that it, you knew? Like looking back, you knew it was there and it, it kept popping up and it was having effects. But finally, you're like, I'm crossing this bridge, and then you took the steps that you talked about with the therapy, the SSRIs, etc. No, or- this was this was super stark. Uh- you know, mental illness is so confusing to even those that spend their life studying it. And it's, it's always some combination of environment and biology Mm. and social and the air that we breathe, like who the heck knows. Um, but for me, uh, my brain was working fine and then it wasn't. And in many ways I was very fortunate that it was so stark because Mm. like I, I just got help right away because it was like night and day, like, you know, a switch in my brain somehow got flipped and now things feel very messed up. Um, looking back, were there some elements of like obsessive thinking that I was numbing through work and performance? Maybe, but I know a lot of people that are pretty driven that don't have OC. Um, so I think that's like some like narrative searching when I think the truth is my environment and biology conspired at a certain point mm-hmm. in my life for mm-hmm. my brain to go kind of haywire. Yeah. And I'm very fortunate to have gotten help. Yeah. Advice for folks that are hearing this and they're thinking, yeah, I've kind of noticed what it, maybe it's not OCD specifically, but what, what would you say to them if they're like, Brad, I, I, th- I think I've kind of been coming through a, a tough phase with this too. I've kind of ignored it or I filled it or I've, you know, numbed it. What, what, what might you suggest to them? Uh, seek professional help if you have the ability. Yeah. Um, don't wait. Go, don't wait. Find a therapist. Find a psychiatrist. Share with your primary care doctor. Maybe they'll have a referral. Um, if you know someone in your network that has experienced uh, psychological suffering, confide in them. Just name it. Have someone in your corner. Maybe they can help you find help. Uh, if you feel all alone, if you feel like you're in a situation where you can't share, uh, this is one thing that the internet is actually good for is there are support groups. Mm. Um, so go find a support group, um, find resources online for what you're, what you're dealing with and, uh, don't wait and then be patient. Um, because, uh, a hallmark of any psychological disorder, anxiety, depression, OCD, bipolar, um, when you are in the thick of a challenging time, your brain makes it seem like it is going to be forever and like it is all consuming and like it will never get better. Um, and that is not accurate, but it can feel true. And I think just doing what you can to remind yourself that what feels like forever won't be, um, for someone that is in the middle of their life, two years of going through a depression, it just sounds terrible. And for someone that is unfamiliar with depression, imagine the worst nausea you've ever had. You can't get comfortable in any position because the nausea is so bad. And like, essentially depression is that for your brain. Mm. Um, It's just terrible. Two years of that. It seems excruciating. It seems um, unbearable. And yet for people that have gone through real extended depressions, you look back on those two years, a decade later in it doesn't feel like it was that long or all consuming, but when you're in it, it's forever. Uh, and I think being patient with yourself and surrounding yourself with people that can remind you to be patient with yourself is just so important. 
Brad, thank you for for being willing to share that uh, very personal side. And just to remind you, we have a lot of health and wellness coaches that are listening to this, folks. Remember your scope of practice. I don't care how good a coach we are, we're not qualified to be a therapist or a counselor. So help your clients make that uh, that shift. One more, and then I'll, I'll open up to just kind of anything else you want to throw out to us. But I was, I was looking at your books. You had in 2017, Peak Performance, 2019, Passion Paradox, 2021, Practice of Groundedness, and now Master of Change. First of all, you love the P letter. So I need I know. to know the that's, story that's, behind that's been, that. There is none. That's been pointed out to me. <laughs> Uh, but what is what does your daily routine include to produce such high level work while living? I know your life a little bit from what you've shared. You're living a, a thriving life. You're doing stuff. You're working out. You're a dad. You're husband. A, a lot of great stuff. But you're putting books out at two to three times the speed of most high level authors like yourself. What what what's the routine? What 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 are some of the things that you're doing differently than maybe a lot of people out there? It's a good question. Um, I don't know because uh, I don't know what a lot of other people are doing. Um, I mean, I don't write like on the side. Writing is the main thing. I have a very small coaching practice that complements my writing. I do some speaking, but like writing is the main thing. So I think that's the first is like, let's, let's do equal comparison. You know, if you're a mm. record producer or a business person or a full-time therapist or a coach, uh, and you write a book every 10 years, well, yeah, it's because you're doing the other thing. So I, I'm a writer first. So I think that there's, there's some of that. Um, and then I think that I've just gotten really willing to get out of my own way and have shitty first drafts mm. because every good thing starts with a shitty first draft. Love that. No matter how hard you work on that first draft, it's going to be shitty. Yeah. So might as well just accept that and get it out of your system. Um, and I think I can get into projects and into pieces faster because I've just accepted like, you know, just it's okay if the first draft stinks. And and folks, he's not talking about writing here. That's anything like that's your, I'm going to start running. I'm going to get in the gym. I'm going to, you know, go on a date. I'm going to, it doesn't matter. It's this, it's this paradox and I've never said it this way, but what's popping into my mind is it's like the key to producing what you like so nicely called like a a fair amount of good quality work is producing a ton of bad quality work. (laughs) Like those things are directly correlated. There's no way around it. Folks, listen, like that is, that seems basic. That is so, so, so powerful in so many aspects of our lives. Brad, this is awesome. I just want to open up any final words of wisdom that I haven't drawn out with the right question. You're like, Coop, I got to share this too. Uh, no, this was great. And I always enjoy talking to you. So, uh, no, I've got nothing else. I think we covered a lot. So, uh, I just appreciate you having me back on the show. I know that that's not a a normal thing for you, but it's really been a pleasure. Good to see you. Keep up the great work. All right. Thanks. And thanks listeners. So good. Our longtime listeners know we rarely bring guests back. And now you know why Brad Stolberg is the exception. Quick reminder for employers, benefit consultants, and complimentary wellness providers. It's now easy to integrate personalized, nationally board-certified behavioral, physical, and mental well-being coaching into any program or platform, or simply offer it as a standalone benefit for your team, especially through our new trademark 360 well-being checkup. Please reach out to discuss details, results at CatalystCoaching360.com, or visit the website CatalystCoaching360.com anytime. And now, 
it's time to be a catalyst. This is Catalyst Coaching 360's Dr. Brad Cooper. Make it a great rest of your week, and I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Catalyst 360 podcast, or maybe over on the YouTube coaching channel.